0: So I get to introduce um, Jim Stump to you. It's always a little awkward to do that when I've known him about uh, 30 hours, right? But we've we've rubbed shoulders a little bit over that time, had him up to our home, and I can tell you this: he's the real deal. He's the real deal. We've handed out a lot of his books. I think he'll probably talk to you a little bit about this. So many of us know him a little bit through his through his book, The Power of One-on-One. When Jim spent about uh, 43 years in the campus of Stanford University, mentoring in one-on-one situations with their student athletes there. And uh, what I heard on Friday with our staff and, and last night directly from Jim is, uh, I think, a message that we need to hear, I, a message that we have been pushing on here as a men's ministry, the, the need for men to rise up and be mentors, mentors over there their children, their families, and those around them. And so, Jim Jim Stump, come and just share what God's laid on your heart. And then at the end of this, we'll have a Q&A time. And so if you have questions that you'd like to directly ask Jim, you can, you can do that when he's, uh, when he's finished. Thanks, Jim.
1: Thank you, Brad. I don't see anyone asleep yet. Can you all see me okay? Good. That's oftentimes an issue. Um, my first year at Stanford, uh, one of the starting linebackers on the football team, who at that time was big, today he'd probably be small, but he was about 6'5", 230, and he had uh, come to faith in Jesus with me, and we'd become good friends, and he said, Jim, you've got to meet my fiance. She's a head cheerleader here at Stanford, and we're having a party at our fraternity uh, after this uh, this next game, so I want you to come and meet her. So I showed up at the at the fraternity and this big dance going on and and I, you know, he stood up above most of the people and he was dancing with this beautiful young lady and uh, he saw me come to the door and he said, hey, Stump, Stump, come on in. And his fiance looked at him and said, Ron, that might be the meanest thing I've ever heard anybody say. And he said, no, that's really his name. And she slugged him in the stomach. so, yeah, it's, it's kind of fun. Uh, well, uh, I grew up, as far as I grew up, in the state of Alaska. Uh, I spent my first 12 years out on Lake Eliamne. Anybody know where Lake Eliamne is? Yeah, my, uh, my parents were missionaries out there. And uh, then my mom and dad moved in here, and I wound up at Stanford and got married and uh, started raising a family. And as any good father, and as I'm hoping that, that you all are doing, I taught my kids the scriptures, and we had them memorizing verses, and one of the favorites was Psalm 23, the shepherd's psalm. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We've all heard it, we've all read it, probably a lot of you have it memorized, but that was one of the things that uh, I had my, my two sons memorized at that time. And I didn't realize how well they had taken to it until my parents came down to visit. And one of my brothers worked for Delta Airlines so they could fly free. And so they would come down every now and then, maybe once a year, to uh, visit the seven of us who they had uh, birthed. And every time they would come, they would bring salmon and moose meat and, you know, the good Alaska stuff. And I just couldn't get enough of that but my mom was a great cook too, so we, we had a lot going for us from that standpoint Anytime they visited. So my, uh, my younger son was about four years old when they visited, uh, visited us one year. And my mom was cooking the meal and she cooked moose meat and, and salmon and, and uh, a few other things. And so as we sat down at the table, uh, the food started coming around and the moose meat came first, and Mike, Mike's an eater. Mike is an eater, and he hunk, took a big hunk of uh, moose meat and put it on his plate, and the salmon came around, a big slab of salmon, and mashed potatoes came around, and a big spoonful of mashed potatoes, and the broccoli came around, and he said, uh, I don't want any broccoli, Dad. And I said, Mike, I want you to eat some broccoli. And he said, maybe you didn't hear me. I said, I don't want to eat any broccoli. And I said, Mike, I want you to eat some broccoli. And he said, no, I won't. And I said, okay, Mike, grab your plate, go over to that table in the corner, and sit down. And he got up and picked up his plate, and his lower lip was hanging down so far he almost tripped over it, and he put his plate on the table, and I said, okay, Mike, I want you to pray. And he bowed his head, and he said, God, thank you for preparing this table before me in the presence of my enemies. Uh, (laughs) Quite, quite a guy. He's now pastor of a typical little Texas church of 23,000 people. Uh, so it's been fun seeing what God has done in his life. But I, I just want to give you an idea of kind of my spiritual journey. Uh, we all have our own unique spiritual journeys. And like I said, I was, uh, I was raised out on Lake Iliamna. My parents moved there when I was only nine months old. And then early winter set in. And my dad only got four logs high on a log cabin before uh, before the first big snowfall. So he just stretched a, a tent over the over the rest of it. And uh, the temperature got down to 56 degrees below zero that year. And I think it froze my pituitary gland because I never grew much after that. But uh, um, as I said, my parents were missionaries there. And so I grew up memorizing scripture. Uh, you know, I... You can probably figure. I'm, I'm a little competitive. And uh, so I saw that the person that memorized the most Bible verses got a gold star next to their name each week. So I wanted that gold star. So I memorized tons of Bible verses. And it was great. It was great. But uh, turns out it didn't mean a whole lot because I was just memorizing stuff. Well, the first 12 years of my life were spent there. And I had a wonderful time growing up. I mean, I had my own dog team, I had my own trap line, um, hunting and fishing, anywhere I I wanted to go. Really, the whole outdoors was my playground. And I was in church every weekend. Uh, was tough to not be there because it was in the front room of our log cabin. So uh, it would have been very noticeable if I'd cut church. And if anybody had asked me if I was a Christian, I would have said, of course I am my parents are missionaries, I believe in God, I love to hunt and fish, what more do you want? And yet, if, if someone had said, what's really going on inside, there, there really wasn't anything. Well, when I was 12, my father got tuberculosis, and we had to leave Alaska, and he eventually was transferred to a tubercular sanatorium in Seattle. So they enrolled me in a Christian high school there, and... I immediately looked around and said, okay, what do I have to do to be popular and successful? Because I heard that's what was important in high school. And I figured academics, athletics, student leadership. Um, so I, I made it a point to excel in those areas. And by the time I graduated from high school, uh, I'd been class president twice, student body president my senior year, captain of the football and baseball teams two years each. I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just saying I had a lot of people fooled. Here I was, supposedly, a Christian leader. I I could quote you from any part of the Bible. Uh, I could pray as eloquently as anyone else could because I knew all the right things to say, but there was nothing there. Well, my high school coach had graduated from Wheaton College back in Illinois, and he recommended that I go there. At the time, they were kind of the the Stanford of Christian colleges. They had uh, the best combination of academics and athletics in the country, for on the division three level so I wanted to go there my my life goal was to go into high school coaching and teaching so I went back to Wheaton uh, determined to become the best coach that I could possibly be and I got got back there and you know I, w- I was intelligent enough to begin asking some of the classic questions like who am I really I mean is is this all there is to life do we just put in our 70 years or whatever, and kick off into darkness, or is is there really a heaven? Is there really a hell? Uh, what what's my meaning in life? You know, these were all questions that were there, and yet I, as I got to college, um, I kind of did that redo of high school in that I didn't face those questions. I didn't go after answers, and that was my my fault. That I just got so busy. I wound up playing four sports in college, and. Um, You know, I was a class officer and a student body officer. I just kind of did that whole thing again. And these questions I'd begun to ask were pushed to the back of my mind. And I wasn't really forced to face them again until the uh, end of my junior year at Wheaton when I was elected to a student body office that placed me in charge of all the incoming freshmen the next year. And that meant that I was up in front of them in charge of their orientation. So the first person they would identify with, if they had questions, was going to be me. And all of a sudden, it hit me. I haven't done my homework. I haven't been honest with myself to find these answers. What if they come and ask me these questions? I don't have any answers, any real answers. I I knew answers because I'd heard a lot of the answers. But again, it wasn't coming from, from my heart. Well, I came back to Bristol Bay to fish commercially that summer. And I had a lot of time to think out on the boats and um, I determined that there had to be something to this whole Christian thing, because my, my parents i couldn 't deny their lives, uh, I knew other people that uh, that really seemed to have life together, who were followers of Jesus, but I, I also knew a lot of other people who who were yeah, shall we say not somebody I wanted to be like, and that maybe that was judgmental on my part, but that 's just the way it was, and so At the end of the summer, as I reflected back on what I'd been thinking about, I thought, you know, maybe if I just go back to to Wheaton and uh, go to church every Sunday, like I'd been doing, but, you know, make sure I never missed. Uh, Go to church every Sunday, read a chapter out of the Bible every day, pray every day, make a special effort to be good to my fellow students and professors. Um, Maybe I'd find what I was looking for. And so I went back to Wheaton. I did all those things very faithfully, and nothing changed. And finally, I just said, screw it. I've, I've given it my best shot. Uh, it works for some people. It just doesn't work for me. Uh, I wasn't going to become an atheist. I was just going to live independently of, of of this Christianity that I had observed. And... I was dating a beautiful girl at the time, and one Sunday afternoon she called me and she said, Jim, there's this guy on campus who's going to be speaking in a meeting I'd like to go to tonight, and uh, uh, any chance that we could go together? Well, I was all over that. Uh, any, any opportunity to spend some time with her, I was going to do it. So we went to this meeting, and uh, the fellow's name was Bud Hinkson, and he was on the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ, and when I... When I heard that he was with Campus Crusade for Christ, I didn't know anything about it, but it sounded pretty, well, uh, yeah, uh, I, 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 just, I just didn't want to have anything to do with it. It just sounded pretty fanatical. Um, but as he was introduced, I found out that uh, he was a guy who had been student body president at the University of Oregon. He had been one of the top athletes on the West Coast for several years. And I, I was willing. That opened up my mind a little bit. I I respected what he had accomplished, and as he spoke, he was talking about a group of young college graduates that he was getting together that were going to tour all over the United States for a year, go through training, and then go to Europe and start the Ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ among the uh, European uh, university students. And I was sitting there thinking, hmm, I've been accepted into graduate school to get my master's degree, to go into coaching, which I've always wanted to do, on the other hand, the opportunity to travel in Europe while I'm young and unattached—that that was pretty attractive too. So when when the evening ended, I was just sitting there in my chair, and there were about 300 students up milling around, and I was contemplating what Bud had said. All of a sudden, I sensed someone in front of me, and there he was, <laughs> the speaker, Bud Hinkson. and uh, he said, uh, "So you're Jim Stump, aren't you?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, oh, "I've heard about you." and I uh, understand you're the kind of guy that I want to be, have as a part of this group of 70 people that I'm putting together to train here in the U.S. and then go to Europe. And I said, uh, whoa, who you been talking to? And he said, the right people. So he said, I'd like to buy you lunch tomorrow and, and talk to you more about it. Well, as a college student, anybody offering you a free lunch, you know, uh, <laughs> I said, absolutely, I'm there. Where do you want to meet and when? So we met the next day, and again, I was, I was so impressed with the quality of life I saw in him. He obviously <clears throat> had something different about him. He seemed to know God in a way that, that was certainly foreign to me. So he invited me to come out to Southern California to go through this three-week training period. So I came out there really thinking that I was going to have a three-week vacation in Southern California, and I was going to enjoy it, and... Uh, that was then I was going to go back to graduate school and, and finish with the rest of my life. But the second night I was there, I heard another young man speak, and he could have been reading my biography as he talked about what his life had been like before he found reality. And I saw through his talk that it wasn't enough just to believe in God, which I'd always done, or to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I'd always believed that too. Uh, but I found out that night that I had to become involved with that intellectual belief, By inviting Jesus to come into my life and allowing him to make me the kind of man that he wanted me to be. Give up control of my life to him. Well, I was good with it until that big C word came up, uh, control. Uh, I'd always, you know, done pretty well for myself by controlling my own future. And and yet I'd never found peace in my life. So... uh, That night, I was faced with a decision. I walked out of the room, sat down under a tree, and just prayed a pretty simple prayer. I I said, Jesus, I know a lot about you because I've heard about you my whole life, but I don't know you, so I'm going to take a jump here. I'm going to invite you into my life and see if you really are who you say you are, so I did that, I invited him in, and then I thanked him for coming in because as far as I knew of his character, he wasn't a liar, he wouldn't have any reason for misleading me, and I just sat there not knowing what was going to happen, you know, it was a beautiful night, uh, I didn't know if I was supposed to see a shooting star in the sky that would validate what I'd just done, or maybe an angel come fluttering down above the trees and just say, good boy, you know, I, I just didn't know, so I just sat there, and, and nothing... Nothing really changed, except that for the first time in my life, I was at peace. Very, very significant. So, I was a biology major uh, at Wheaton, uh, and I didn't want to be psyching myself into something. So, I went back to my room that night and opened up the Bible that was laying there by by the side of the bed. And I began reading the Gospel of John. And it was like these words that I had read and memorized all of a sudden came alive to me. And I knew something had happened, that my life had changed. And the uh, next day I, I got up and went back to training and uh, wound up committing myself to join this group called the University Ambassador Team. We went to Europe and... Uh, then came back from Europe after two years. Athletes in Action was just starting the Campus Crusade Athletic Division, and I was asked to be the European director while I was living over there, so I traveled around and worked with the European Olympic Committees setting up their program, and had wonderful experiences there, uh, learning uh, a lot, having a ball. It, w- it, was a, it was a great experience for me. When I came back, um, I was assigned for one year to a different foreign country, and I spent a year at the University of Mississippi, and, uh, you know, the difference between Oxford, England, and Oxford, Mississippi, culturally, is pretty significant, uh, if any of you have ever been to Oxford, Mississippi. But God took me there for, for that one year. And I was directing a football conference before going back to Ole Miss, in, uh, directing a football conference in Southern California, and there were two guys in my room who were from Stanford University. Both had come to faith uh, almost by accident, if you believe in accidents. They would kind of overheard conversations and said, boy, that, that makes sense. I want to be a part of that. And no one had spent any time with them, following them up, answering questions. Very intelligent guys. and. Living in Europe, as I had done for the previous two years, I'd been forced to really do my homework from an apologetical standpoint, getting answers for why I believed what I believed. So I was able to answer their questions. And they said, would you please come to Stanford? We really need you there. And so that's where I've been. For, I, I spent that year at Ole Miss and then went to Stanford the next year, arrived there in 1970 and stepped out of my car and said, I'm home. This is where God wants me, and been there 43 years, just uh, mentoring the athletes, helping them find a relationship with Jesus, and then uh, helping them grow in that relationship. But I just want to address a a few things this morning. As men, we all want to live lives of of significance and meaning. Uh, We want to have a a positive impact on others and leave behind a, a legacy that has changed our world. That's our calling as men. Um, God has created us to have influence for him. It's the nature of our being that we do that. When I was in England, uh, an elderly statesman on his deathbed was asked by his son one of the questions that I'm sure you've heard uh, before. But his son said, Father, if you had your life to live over again, would you change anything? And he said, yes, if I had my life to live over again, I would live it to the changing of men's lives, because until you've seen a man's life changed, you've really changed nothing at all. So that is where I have tried to be, to help men become who they are. If they don't know Jesus, help them begin that relationship, because that's when life really begins. Is there a, a need for a positive influence in our country today? Wow, I guess so. Let, let me just give you a few facts that, that kind of bring this into perspective. More Americans have died at the hands of drunk drivers in the past two years than were killed in the Vietnam War. There are more barmaids today in America than college, female college students. The money spent on liquor last year in 2013, could have sent 5 million missionaries and their family and equipment to the mission field. There are three times more criminals today than college students. There's been an 800% increase in crime in the last 10 years. America spends five times as much to correct crimes as they do on all education, both public and private. Since 1970, violent crime has increased in America 570%, and illegitimate births have increased more than 400%. During the same 44 years, our population has only increased 43%, and SAT scores have dropped 67 points on the average. So, yes, there is a need. There's a huge need. And is there an answer? I believe there is. I believe there's a very compelling answer. Jesus Christ doesn't just show us a way as did Buddha in his Eightfold Path. He doesn't just philosophize about life as Confucius did when he said, the essence of what I have taught I have myself been unable to attain. He's not confused in truth. In fact, one of his great statements was in John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that was either the most arrogant statement that has ever been made, or it's true. I believe it's true. So how does Jesus impact lives today? Well, my my first year on the staff of Campus Crusade, we spent three months at the University of California at Berkeley. That was during the free speech movement when that was just getting going. All the Sex, drugs, and rock and roll that you could hope for was found there. And that little campus of Berkeley, which is across the bay from Stanford, our, our big arch rivals, uh, I did not know at the time that I was going to wind up uh, across the bay at Stanford. But uh, uh, Dr. Bill Bright, and we were just talking about him, Richard, uh, Dr. Bill Bright was there with a, a bunch of staff. We had uh, a, a number of of Campus Crusade staff came to the Berkeley campus and spoke to students, spoke in fraternities and sororities, athletic teams, things like that. And I was a part of this university ambassador team and it was our job to be a part of that and then to follow it up for three months. Well, one of the first things Dr. Bright did was to interview Bettina Aptheker, who at that time was the head of the Communist Party at Berkeley. And her father was Gus Aptheker, who was head of the Communist Party in the U.S. So she was a hardcore atheist, communist, and uh, I was standing about 10 feet away from this interview, so I know it happened. I heard the words myself. But Dr. Bright said to her, uh, Miss Apthecker, who, in your opinion, is the greatest teacher, the greatest leader, the greatest example for good that the world has ever known? And she dropped her eyes and kind of looked the other way and then, she said, well, if I were to be honest, I, I guess I would have to begrudgingly say that Jesus of Nazareth is the, that greatest leader, that greatest teacher, that greatest philosopher of all history. He has had more impact for good than the world has ever seen. Isn't that interesting? That she would make that statement. But it's true. You look at history. You look at what's gone on in the world and what's going on today. And the impact of Jesus Christ... Is incredible. Uh, You look back at the time of Christ and what happened to his disciples. Any of you ever studied the lives of his disciples? It's pretty scary. I mean, why would Jesus choose those guys? I'm I'm not trying to be uh, insensitive here. But as you read about who these guys were, as it's depicted in the Gospels, before they saw Jesus alive, after the resurrection, it's pretty scary stuff. And the way I figure it, if Jesus could take those guys and change the world, what can he do with, with us who are really committed to him? But anyway, they, all, all those disciples who ran away and left him the night that Judas betrayed him and um, basically didn't care that he went to his death. It seemed that way because they, they certainly didn't stand by him. But a few days later, after he had risen from the dead, um, they were out talking to everyone about the person of Jesus. They were as bold as could possibly be. And so their lives were transformed. Most of them gave their lives for their faith. All over the world as they traveled around the world to, to share about their leader, their mentor, Jesus, who they had seen alive after the resurrection. So what about today? Today? Are there lives going on today that are being changed? Yes, there are. I just want to give you a a few examples of what God is doing. That year I was at the University of Mississippi. You know, I I spent a little time arguing with God about that assignment. Uh, I couldn't figure out why in the world he would send me there, where I had just spent two years learning how to communicate my faith to guys that ask Really tough questions, and then I got to Ole Miss, and about 95% of the students identified themselves as Christians. So what do you do? Well, um, there was this group that met every Sunday night on campus at a fraternity or sorority, a different one each, each week. And I was assigned the job of finding speakers for this, and I heard that the offensive coordinator of the football team was a Christian, so I went by his office, set up an appointment, went by to see him and to ask him if he would speak. To our group, and he seemed a, a bit dodgy, but uh, he said, I, I'd be open to considering it, but very honestly, Jim, he said, I I, I don't think I'd be very good at that, and I said, well, I've, I've heard that you're a Christian. He said, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, and he said, my, my concern is that if I was standing up in front of them speaking, and one of them asked me a question I couldn't handle, uh, I'm I'm not sure that I would feel real comfortable with that. And I don't think I want to put myself in a position to uh, to let that be an opportunity for someone to challenge me. So I think I'm going to pass on it. And I said, uh, Bob, uh, I, I, I think that's not going to be an issue because that's not the way we have the meeting set up. Uh, basically, a speaker gets up and he speaks and then he leaves and students all grab some cookies and milk and you know, talk and go back home. And he said, well, I, I just, I'm, I'm still really concerned about them asking me a question I couldn't handle. So I sensed that maybe something was going on, and I wanted to help him in any way I could to, to handle the situation. So um, I, we used this little booklet called uh, The Four Spiritual Laws, And I had one with me, and I said, Bob, have you ever seen this booklet? And he said, no. And so I I walked through it with him and got to the, the final point where it says we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Then we can begin that relationship with God. And he said, Jim, do you mean to tell me that that's how a person becomes a Christian? And I said, well, that's what the Bible says. And he said, wow. He said, all my life, he said, I'm in, my, in, I'm in my early 40s. All my life I've been told that all I have to do is show up at church and be good to my fellow man and that I'll make it to heaven. Are you telling me I need to invite Jesus into my life? And I said, well, that's, that's what the scriptures say. And he said, well, let's do it then. So we bowed our heads together, and he prayed and invited Jesus into his life. And he said, uh, can you get me about 50 copies of that little booklet you just showed me? And I said, sure. He said, bring them by tomorrow. I want to I show some people. So by the end of that week, he had gone around and shared Christ with all 50 people in the, in the athletic department there at Ole Miss. And this was back when, uh, does the last name of Manning mean any, anything to you folks? Who, who are the Mannings? Archie. Very few people know that, by the way, Lauren. Peyton, Eli, but Papa... Was Archie? Archie was a junior that year at uh, at Ole Miss, and uh, a front runner for the Heisman Trophy. Great athlete, and uh, he was chosen at the end of that junior year uh, to be first-team All-American in Playboy magazine. Well, you know, they were a little concerned, being from Mississippi, that Archie would go to this. Playboy magazine, All-American Dinner in Chicago and something bad might happen. So they sent Bob Tyler along to, to make sure he was okay. And so when, uh, when Bob got there, he, he related the story to me later. When he got there, um, one, of the, one of the people said, Hey, uh, Bob, you see that guy up there at the, at the bar? Uh, that guy's the, the religion editor for Playboy magazine. And if you know there was a religion editor of Playboy magazine, uh, I didn't. But uh, Bob said, I went up to him and, and uh, introduced myself and said, hey, if you're the religion editor of Playboy magazine, you, you've probably seen this little booklet, The Four Spiritual Laws. And the guy said, no, I've never seen it. Bob said, well, let me show it to you. And he read through it with him. Now, as far as I know, the guy didn't receive Christ. But this was just, you know, this was Bob. He was so excited about what God was doing in his life that he wanted people to know about it. Well, when I moved out to Stanford, uh, I kind of lost track of of Bob for a while. He was still in coaching, but as you know, in coaching, you move around a lot. So uh, we were recruiting, Bill Walsh was our head coach, and we were recruiting a quarterback out of Louisiana. And uh, his last name was Booty. uh, Josh Booty was his name. And he was the number one quarterback in the country, and Bill Walsh really wanted him to come to Stanford. And so uh, he heard that the family were believers, so he asked me if I would go with them on their recruiting uh, tour around the campus. So as we were talking, um, uh, John, John Booty, the father, and I were, were talking, and I asked him where he'd gone to college, and he said, I went to Mississippi State. And I said, oh, I spent a year at Big Rival, Ole Miss in Oxford. And he said, really, were you there when Bob Tyler was there? And I said, yes, I was, as a matter of fact. He said, well, Bob Tyler led me to faith in Jesus Christ uh, when he was the head coach at at Mississippi State. And I came in there as a freshman quarterback, and I didn't know what was going on in life, and and he led me to faith in Jesus. So I've led my my three sons to Christ, who all went on to play in the NFL. And uh, you just never know what God's going to do with something. Uh, it, It might appear to be nothing but the ripple effect of what God's Spirit can do in people's lives is really pretty incredible. When I got to Stanford, one of the uh, one of the things that was going on at the time was th- there's a a firehouse on campus, Lauren you remember this, and a lot of the football players would make some extra money on the side by being student firemen, and they lived in the firehouse, and a bunch of those guys uh, over the first few months became believers. And so they invited me to come and do a Bible study in the firehouse. Uh, And there was one guy who was reputed to be the smartest guy on the football team at Stanford. He was a student fireman, and he was pre-med. And everyone said, you know, this guy is so smart that the people in the firehouse want to get you and him kind of together. So would you come and, and we'll make sure he's there. But we want you there. So I I came and and spoke and, uh, you know, said a few words. And I said, does anyone have any questions as we begin? And Ken was sitting right in the front row, and he raised his hand and said, yeah, I got a question. Everybody kind of (coughs) smirked. And uh, uh, so he gave me the question. Frankly, the question wasn't that tough. And so I answered the question, and he said, hmm, that makes sense. And um, he said, well, how about this? And he asked me another question again wasn't that tough at all. And I answered the question, and he said, hmm, that makes sense too. And he kept coming back with more questions, and I'd answer the questions. And, and um, by the end of the evening, uh, I said, well, Ken, do you have any more questions? And he said, no, I don't. You've answered all my questions. And I said, well, great. Why don't we pray then, and you can invite Jesus into your life and begin a relationship with him? And he said, no, I, I wouldn't do that. And I said, why not? He said, well, all my friends know I'm an atheist. And uh, if I were to become a Christian, uh, I, I would lose credibility with all my friends. And I said, so you're letting your friends impact your life in that way, making you a dishonest man? You told me that you had all your questions answered. So if you choose to not line up with the truth, then to me that, that smells of dishonesty. No offense, but, you know, you, you got to look yourself in the mirror, too. And he kind of chuckled, and he said, ah. he said, I'm never going to become a Christian. Uh, he said, I that, that will just never happen. And I said, okay, Ken, then uh, tell you what. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray that God does not allow you to go to sleep tonight until you get honest with yourself and you invite Jesus into your life. And, of course, all of his buddies were sitting around there listening. And... Uh, He just kind of snorted and said, I'm going to sleep like a baby. Well, 4 o'clock in the morning, my phone rings. Damn you, stump. I can't sleep. So I said, time you got honest, isn't it? He said, yeah. So we prayed together over the phone, and he committed his life to Christ and became one of the the leading uh, spokesmen for, for Jesus on that football team. So God still is in the process of changing lives. Um, we, we had a, a young man on the volleyball team. He was captain of Stanford's first-ever NCAA championship volleyball team. Brilliant young man, uh, but he was really struggling with, with some issues in his life. Psychologically, he just had, was fighting some depression, and, and he was trying to live up. He came from a very, very wealthy family in, in Southern California, His grandfather was the president of the Los Angeles Country Club and uh, his uncle was the president of the Bank of America Investment Banking Group. So he was trying to live up to all this and really struggling with it. Well, we were introduced by a mutual friend and I I sat down uh, with him and, and shared with him how he could begin a relationship with Jesus answered a bunch of his questions and he said it's so good to to have my head line up with my heart because I've always wanted to know God well he invited Jesus to come into his life that day and just grew like a weed spiritually and when he when he finally graduated he graduated he he'd been planning to drop out of stanford at that time and to stop playing volleyball because his knees hurt so badly, he had what they called jumper's knees. You're a, you're a knee guy. Uh, Brad, you know what jumper's knees are? The, those uh, those ligaments and tendons around the knees just in extreme pain all the time. Well, in volleyball, all you do is jump. Not all you do, but that's what you do a lot of the time. So he was really struggling with that. He was struggling academically and was really wanted to drop out of Stanford. Well, after inviting Jesus into his life, he... Persevered through the the pain in his knees. Wound up graduating as captain of of the uh, volleyball team that won the national championship. Graduated with a 4.0 major in English. And uh, that was in honors English. And went on to graduate school, went to law school actually uh, at Pepperdine University in Southern California and graduated in the top 10 in his class. Not the top 10%, the top 10 in his class. And got a job with the best law firm in Los Angeles and called me six months later and said, Jim, I am so miserable, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. And I had done his wedding when he had married a a beautiful young lady from Lubbock, Texas. And he said, you know, I think I just want to go back to Lubbock, Texas with my wife. She really wants to be around her family there. And I want to start coaching and teaching in high school. And he said, my family doesn't like it very much because they want me to be a big-time lawyer. But I am so miserable doing that. I want to do something that, where I can really feel like I'm having an impact in lives. Well, he went back and became the uh, volleyball coach at a Christian high school in Lubbock, Texas. He's just had an amazing impact. He's got four kids now. And he, he came over and, and saw me this last summer and brought with him a book that had been given to him by the graduating seniors. He'd been their class advisor. And to read through what these people said about the impact that he had had in their lives was just incredible. And he called me um, a couple of months ago, and he said, You know, I was out visiting my grandfather, who who is really struggling health-wise, and the doctors say he's not going to live very much longer. But he said, I left there without telling him how he could know Jesus in a personal way. And he said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I don't know how I can live with that guilt of not telling him because he may he may die in the next two or three days. And uh, I just feel like i failed him. And I said, well, why don't you call him and talk to him over the phone and just share with him how he can come to faith in Jesus And tell him your story and how your life has been changed. And he said, well, I've alluded to it, but I've never really gotten, you know, really straight with him on it. And I said, do that. So he called me back the next day and said that he had done that that night. He had called his grandfather and led him to faith in Christ. And two hours after he prayed to invite Jesus into his life, he died. So the timing was incredible. But you think of the ripple effect. And at at his grandfather's memorial service, uh, I went down from uh, San Francisco to L.A. for the memorial service. There were 600 of the top businessmen in Los Angeles who were there for his funeral and his memorial service. And Tyler stood up and shared with all these men how they could know Jesus Christ in a personal way and talked about helping his grandfather find faith uh, at the last minute. And so again we we won't know till we get to heaven uh what the what the latest results of that might be, but all I know is that this young man was faithful, and God used it in a tremendous way. so lives are being changed all over i mean it just i i I wish you could just come and, and walk with me through a week at Stanford It just seems like constantly people are coming up to me and saying. Tell me how I can know this Jesus in a personal way. I've heard about what's going on. Uh, my friends are meeting with you, and, and, and they're talking about a personal relationship with Jesus that confuses me. Um, and people are just coming to faith on a, on a consistent basis. And I'm, I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back in any way. You, know, you don't have to know me very long to know that I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. You know, I'm not, not the brightest light bulb in the chandelier, especially at a place like Stanford. Uh, I th- I think it's kind of comical, God's sense of humor, to have me grow up in a log cabin on Lake Eliamna and then put me at Stanford for 43 years. Uh, but that's what he's done. So, and, and that's where Lauren and I, Lauren Lehman and I, first met. Right, Lauren? Yeah. He came there to go to graduate school, and our parents had known each other for years up here, but we'd never met. We'd heard about each other, but never met. And wound up living together down there and have been fast friends ever since. So I'm going to open it up for questions. If any of you have any, any questions about uh, anything I've said or, or uh, not said, and you have questions, feel free. Yes, sir. No. Uh, the, the two largest lakes in Alaska essentially lie side by side. Lake Iliamna, which is about 90 miles long, and then Lake Clark, which is just over a little, some would call it a mountain range, some would call it a hill range. But um, Port Allsworth is on Lake Clark. Um, I grew up on Lake Iliamna. Pile Bay. Yeah. Pile Bay is at the upper end of Lake Iliamna. And it's not really a working village anymore. There's one family that lives there. A good share of the year they, they truck back and forth across the road from Cook Inlet to Lake Eliamna. Yes, sir? Well, it doesn't come in at Pile Bay. It's about uh, two miles down the lake where it actually enters into Lake Eliamna. I've caught a, caught a few salmon out of that river. Oh, yes, there's, there's fish in that, in that river and that lake, believe me. Yes sir. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> uh sorry I I didn't mean to. Yeah. Uh but but it's true. I mean guy Guys have been turned off for the most part by organized religion, and they don't want to hear about organized religion. But I I can count on one hand the number of guys who have not been interested in hearing about Jesus. They may not want to know about the Bible or church or Christianity or or philosophy, but they want to know about Jesus. Why has he had the impact he's had for over 2,000 years? Why are people still talking about him? I mean, for goodness sakes, he only lived 33 years, got killed, his best friends ran off and left him. Why are people still talking about him? So I just, I really focus on the person of Jesus and talk to him. And, you know, they're, they're young guys. They're 18 to 22 years old for the most part, and they've got stuff going on in their lives with their parents, their friends, their coaches, and they need perspective. And I don't work for Stanford. I have a separate nonprofit. So um, they feel safe in talking to me. And we just, we talk about life. We talk about the, the real nitty gritties, as they say, of life. And so, but I, I, I always bring things back to the person of Jesus because he's the only one that has the answers. Uh, we've, we've messed things up pretty, pretty badly as human beings but Jesus is the one who has the answers. Yes, Brad. I, I meet with 35 students a week one-on-one for an hour each week on an ongoing basis. Um, it's, I only have 35 time slots available when they're available. So I meet with 35 a week and I have a waiting list of about 20 guys each quarter. So if one of the guys I'm meeting with has to study for a midterm or something and he can't make it, he'll call me and say, I can't make it. So then I call one of the guys on the waiting list and he fills in. So. Again, it's not because I'm any great shakes. It's just because there's a real need and there's a there's a, a heart to know God and to to not only begin that personal relationship but to grow in that relationship with Jesus. So the 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 desire is there in a, in a huge way. Yes. It, it varies. Good question. Um, every quarter, their, their academic schedule changes. So, you know, they may have Tuesday at 10 o'clock free one quarter and then uh, Friday at, at 9 o'clock free the next quarter. Uh, but it's up to them, and it's, this, this may sound arrogant, but it's first come, first serve because my schedule fills up, and when it fills up, that's their time slot for the, for the quarter. And so it's very seldom the same time each quarter. But most of the guys, w- when I start meeting with them, we we continue to meet every quarter uh, for the rest of the time there at Stanford. Yes? No, no, no. I, I do not work for Stanford. I, I have a nonprofit called Sports Challenge. And people donate to that who think that what I do is important. And so that's... That's how I'm paid. So I've, I've never taken a penny from Stanford, which also means they don't control me. So I can talk about whatever I want to talk about, and they don't have any uh, – they can't come in and say, well, you're, you need to be giving equal time to Islam and Buddhism and, you know, whatever. So, Yes. Uh, It's a referral basis. When the freshmen come in, the upperclassmen go to him and say, see that guy over in the corner in the sports cafe? That's somebody you can trust. You ought to set up a meeting with him and start meeting with him. So that's the way it happens. Uh, As far as the, the coaches go, David Shaw, who's the head coach there now, I've known since he was two years old. His dad used to coach at Stanford, and he'd be running around the practice field after practice. So he and I have a long relationship. He played football at Stanford and was in my Bible study when he, when he was playing there, so and depending on the athletic director, uh, most of them have been very supportive because they they see good things happening in the lives of the students. There was someone else, yes, yes. Ah. Right. Okay, I, I have material that I go through. It's from Multiplication Ministries, and I, I gave Pastor Brad a, a copy of it yesterday. But there are 16 pages, pretty foundational, basic stuff uh, on that. And last year I was asked by a freshman, uh, you know, he said, eh, it's only 16 pages here, you know, what are we going to do when this is done? And I, I keep track of where each guy is that I meet with. I have, write their name on one of these little post-it kind of things, and and uh, so I, I move it every week when when we finish our time together, so that I know where to come back to. And uh, so I said to this freshman, "Well, let's let's look at uh, at these 35 little little red mark uh, markers here." And I said, "This guy's a fifth-year senior. This guy's a fifth-year senior." This guy's a fifth-year senior. This guy's a fourth-year senior, you know. And, and we've been meeting for four years, five years, for an hour each week for the most part with those guys. And so we get really deep into each other's lives. And I, I tell them that, you know, I'm, I'm safe. I'm never going to repeat anything. In fact, my wife doesn't know what goes on in those conversations. Um, she doesn't want to know. She, she recognizes that that's a, a private thing between me and those athletes. And I, I say the same thing to the athletes. Hey, I'm going to be open with my life, and I don't want guys coming out of the locker room laughing because they heard that I said something or did something. I want what I share with you to be held in the same confidence that I hold what you say to me. And so it works really well. Yes, sir. Uh, girls 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 uh, <laughs> that's that 's pretty much it um, yeah. <laughs> no i mean they they get told a bunch of stuff uh, in the classroom, and they 're all brilliant kids they really are they 're not just a dumb athlete they're they genuinely are student athletes and just about the time I think I've heard every question that's ever been asked, one of them will come up with a new one, and it stumps me. A um, little play on words there, but uh, um, sorry. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's true. They're, they're hearing this stuff in the classroom. And so when they come to me each week, they, they may not have a question out of the scriptures necessarily, but they'll say, Jim, my professor said this this week, and it just doesn't seem to line up with what you and I have been talking about. Can we talk about that? And so we do. And we open up the scriptures and say, what did Jesus have to say about that? What did Paul say? and Whoever. And we'll, we'll trail. We'll track that through scriptures. And so we may, we may get one line in our quote-unquote curriculum, but it's not, our time together is not curriculum-driven. It's relationship-driven. And I tell the guys there's no such thing as a bad question and you can you can ask any question at any time about anything and i will do my best to answer it john you had a question Great question. Because before I, before I wrote this book, The Power of One-on-One, I asked each guy I met with what held them back. What was their main struggle with sharing their faith? And it all came down to one word. Any ideas what it is? Sorry? Fear, Fear. exactly. Fear. What if I say the wrong thing? What if they laugh at me? What if they say, I thought you were smart? What if? What if? What if? What if? It's the fear. And the only way you overcome fear is by heading straight into it. Saddling up anyway, yeah. And talk about Jesus. Because anytime you talk about Jesus, he has a vested interest in the conversation. So he's going to be there. If you're talking about religion or talking about going to church, I have nothing against church, believe me. But... Uh, there 's a lot of churches that these kids grow up in that, that don 't have the vitality that that is a part of this church, and that 's obvious to me you know what 's going on in, uh, in lives here so I really commend you guys for for being here and, and for uh, for showing up this morning to to learn maybe more about walking in your faith yes, sir. What's our time like? <laughs> uh, well, I, it would be tough to get into it too much, but I, I would just say um, some, some people say you're supposed to spend time with other people and just time is good enough. I don't think so. I think it's quality time. And I tried to involve my kids and my wife, in my ministry just as much as I could. So we had guys over to the house, guys I was mentoring, come to the house. um, We'd all go to the the games together. We'd talk to the parents afterwards together. It's just, you know, part of a a whole big family. So involving people, I think, is really important uh, in that, again, talk about Jesus. Um, You know, I, I had the most wonderful parents in the world and I will forever be thankful for them. But I, I didn't grow up hearing as much about Jesus as I did about Christianity and religion and uh, other things. And that's, that's the way they were taught. That's the way they were raised. So they were passing on what they knew. Well, Maybe, maybe we know a lot more these days uh, about who Jesus is, or at least the emphasis has changed from that time. I was raised in a very legalistic society where you were judged on how good a Christian you were by what you didn't do. And that just never made any sense to me. You know, why, why can I not go to movies? Why can I not play cards? Why can I not dance? Why can I, you know, all these things, and it just didn't connect with me. Um, but that's the way my parents had been taught, so that's what they were passing on to me. Um, so, does that help at all? Yes, sir. Well, but, yeah, there, there are over 100 players on, on the football team, so that could very easily take up all those. But again, if a basketball player or a wrestler or a tennis player or, or a baseball player gets to me before a football player for that last slot, sorry, see you next quarter. Be a little more on time. Uh, So that's the way it is. But I would say out of the 35, just to give a, a, a range, probably 22, 23 football players, maybe eight or nine baseball players, and then the rest would be gymnast, tennis, wrestling, basketball, things like that. Yes, sir. There, there are uh, a few people around, uh, and and I will usually meet with a person one time, just to kind of figure out who the best person would be to to refer them on to but um, just the way I've chosen to do things, there's a sports cafe in the athletic building at Stanford, and every day I'm at the same table in the corner right up against the windows, and the guys call that my office. And so um, a non-athlete but a coach came to me about three years ago, and and he said, uh, I'd never met him, but he came up and introduced himself, and he said, Jim, I I would really... uh, I would really like to have you start meeting with me for an hour each week. And I said, "Um, that's kind (laughs) of random. No offense, but but why would you want to do that? And he said, well, I've coached these kids. I know how smart they are. And if they're taking an hour out of their week to meet with you, and I see them in there meeting with you uh, all the time, something's going on there, and I want a piece of that. So we, I mean... A month into our time together, he was already a believer, but a month into our time together, he told me that I had changed his life incredibly. And I didn't change his life. I just, I just taught him the truths about Jesus. And he was, he was laboring under tremendous guilt from some things that he had said and done earlier. And when I talked to him about God's grace and forgiveness, it, it was like I'd taken a 50-pound weight off his, off his head. So, yeah. Yeah. Other people do notice. And and later he came to me and said, uh, Jim, I I want you to mentor one of the young ladies that that has been on my track team who's training for the Olympics. She's graduated, but she's training for the Olympics here and has a real good shot at a gold medal in the Olympics. But she hurt herself in training, and she's really struggling. And would you please meet with her? And I said, well, I, I certainly know who she is from reading about her, but I've, I've never met her, and you know if she walked up to the table, I wouldn't know who she was. And uh, he said, well, she knows who you are. And I said, why? I've never met her. He said, Jim, every athlete at Stanford knows who you are. He's that guy who sits in the corner and meets with football players. <laughs> uh, so, a- again, it, it's just, there's something to be said for faithfulness and just continuing to show up, and that's, that's, I think, worked really well. There was a, yes, sir. <laughs> About hypocrisy? hmm mm mm-hmm. Mm. Well, So I don't know whether you first of all, thank you for your openness. I'm not, I'm not sure I would have been able to just say that in front of all these people. So thank you. Okay, uh, the, the, it's okay. Uh, the first one was a, a question of, of failure. Uh, maybe some people that you share Christ with uh, don't, don't receive him. How do you handle that? That failure slash rejection, I, I guess, would be. Uh, let, let me define success for you uh, in sharing your faith. In my opinion, true success in sharing your faith is simply sharing with a person how they can become a follower of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. Just because a person doesn't invite Jesus into their life, that's not failure. As long as you have shared about Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, leave the results to God. That's that's the job of the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say? The Holy Spirit when he comes will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's his job. Our job is to present the truth about Jesus. So that, that would be number one. Uh, so, um, and by the way, I've never failed. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, no, believe me, I've, there have been plenty of times when, when that, it just hasn't come together. And I'm okay with that. Because sometimes, sometimes God uses us in, in one little area to open a door for someone else to follow through on. And I'm, I'm fine with that. I just want to be the man he's called me to be. Um, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's too heavy a burden for anyone to bear. Uh, I just want to be faithful. And I want to talk about Jesus. And I want to tell them how they can begin a relationship with Jesus. I never let anyone get away from time with me without knowing how they can become a follower of Jesus. And I tell them that. I I say, you're a smart guy. At some point in your life, you're gonna see how impactful this evidence is for Jesus being who he said to be. And you're gonna want to begin this relationship with Jesus. When that time comes in your life, I want you to know how. This happened to one of the most famous athletes Stanford's ever had came to me and said, I just need somebody safe I can talk to about life. Can I do that with you? And I said, sure. And, and um, so we, I asked him about his spiritual journey. He told me I, I shared my journey with him. And I, I said to him, at some point in your life, uh, you're going to want to become a follower of Jesus. So let me just show you how that will happen when the time comes. And I just walked through the little booklet with him. And at the end, I said, now, do you know how to begin a relationship with Jesus. He said, absolutely, I do. And he said, I'm not ready to make that commitment yet, but when the time comes, I do know. That's, that's our responsibility, just doing that. Sure, absolutely.
0: That the issue is going from death to life. And Jim can't bring someone from death to life. All he can do is share the truth that the Spirit can take and bring someone from death to life. So the pressure is off on the result end. The requirement, the call of God, is just to be faithful with the proclamation, right? And then it's the Spirit's job to go take a person from death to life. So the failure issue is a mis- um, I think. Uh, in some point, a misunderstanding of who does the work, right? And so the pressure is off. It's just the faithfulness, like you said, to share the truth. And let me
1: just say that I refuse to argue with people. Um, and, and you would expect a lot of that at Stanford where the kids are so bright. But if I sense any of them just want to meet with me to argue with me, I just say, sorry, my, uh, my time is short and... Uh, I I actually ask them this question. If I answer all your questions, will you become a follower of Jesus? And if they say yes, I would say fire away. I will stick with you as long as it takes to get all your questions answered. If they say no, I just get up from the table and say, well, it's sure been great meeting you. Uh, Have a good life, but until you're ready to be honest, uh, uh, I'm a busy man. And when you're ready to come back and talk and, and you really want to know answers, then we'll then we'll we'll talk. I'll be glad to be there for you, and I want to get back to your second question on hypocrisy. Um, it, again, I I don't think well. There, there's only been one person who's ever lived who wasn't a hypocrite at some point in his life, and that was Jesus. So unless you're uh, in that same realm, I. I wouldn't think that would be an issue. Um, The Apostle Paul said something really interesting. He said in one of his letters, follow me as I follow Christ. He didn't say, just follow me. You guys are going to be much better men if you just follow me. No, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. And so that is what I, I tell each one of the guys I meet with. Don't just follow Jim Stump. Follow me as I follow Jesus. And that means you're going to have to get to know Jesus better and better and better to know what the, to know if there's a, a differentiation there. But it, it, hypocrisy is a great fear. And a lot of the guys that I talk to uh, say, Jim, I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I've, I, I understand you can tell me how I can become a follower of Jesus without being a hypocrite. And if you can tell me that, then, then I, I, I really want to know more. Um, so often hypocrisy is tied into where we are in our walk. And do you remember the story of uh, Zacchaeus? Not Zacchaeus. I'm sorry, uh, Nicodemus uh, in John chapter three. Nicodemus was uh, the ruler of the Jews. In order to be in his in his position, he had to have completely memorized the Old Testament word for word. He had to um, he had to come to the temple to worship three times a day. He had to pray on his own seven times a day. Uh, talking about being a good person. They didn't come any better than that. But he saw in the life of of Jesus a quality that he'd never seen before. And he came to him one night and he said, "Now, Now, teacher, we know that you've come from God because nobody could do these amazing things that you do unless God was with him. And it was like Jesus totally ignored his comment. And he said, Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus says, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, wait a minute here. Born again? I'm an old man. How am I supposed to get back into my mother and be born again? And Jesus said, nah, you kind of missed the point here, Nicodemus. That's, that's a stump translation of that. But uh, he said, that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So he's talking about two different types of birth, a physical birth, which we all undergo, and then a spiritual birth, which happens at a point in time when we invite Jesus into our lives and begin that relationship with Him. And I, I remember so well when my daughter was born. It was a, a year after Linda and I were married. When I married Linda, she had two boys who were four and two when we got married. And then our uh, uh, I got my princess about a, almost exactly a year later. And I remember when she was born at Stanford Hospital, and I went over that, that first evening. She was born cesarean, so they had to stay in the hospital for five days. And and I, I went up to uh, the window, and I was looking at all these babies in the bassinets out there beyond the window, and, and a nurse came up to me and said, which one is yours? And I said, that one right there, Ashley. And she said, oh, she's the best baby we've ever had here. Never cries, never never does anything. You know, she'll whimper a little bit when when she's hungry, and then we'll take her in, and Linda will feed her. And, and I said, of course she's the best baby you have ever had. Don't you know what my last name is? And uh, so anyway, after five days, I, I brought him home, and Linda said, well, you know, I've, I've just had a cesarean, so when Ashley cries at night uh, or messes her diapers, you're going to have to get up and change her and uh, bring her to me for feeding. And, and I said, cry, Ashley? No, the nurse told me she was the best baby they'd ever had, so we don't have to worry about that. Well, about two hours after we went to bed, I sat straight up in bed and said, What is that smell? And she said, well, that's diapers. (laughs) You're going to have to change your diapers. And I said, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. She wasn't supposed to do that. I mean, she's the best baby they've ever had at Stanford Hospital. (laughs) Um, Now, was I being realistic? Absolutely not. Babies mess their diapers. When they're hungry, they cry. They want to be fed. They do stuff that you don't do as you grow. Now, when Ashley grew up a little bit, it came time to crawl. She started crawling around the floor and she'd see these beautiful lamps up on the tables and and she'd uh, pull herself up and reach up and touch the lamp and invariably pull it off the table or something like that or grab the cord and pull it off. And and uh, the lamp would break and. Did I go kick her and say, what are you doing? No, babies are curious. They want to know what's going on. They want to investigate. They want to see what's happening. When she was old enough to walk, she began to walk. But she didn't always do it real well. You know, she spent a lot of time on her rear end, frankly. You know, she'd take a couple of steps and boom. Then she'd get up and take a couple more steps and boom, she'd be down again. Are you getting the point here? when when we're born spiritually we're going to have some tough times we're going to mess our spiritual diapers and we're going to we're probably not going to walk real well all the time so take the pressure off yourself it's it's okay to be a baby if you're a baby now if you've been telling everybody that you're a Christian for 30 years and you're still messing your spiritual diapers on a regular basis, yeah, you need to talk to somebody. Um, but I, I think oftentimes nonbelievers will look at a baby Christian and say, uh, oh, they're being a hypocrite. No, you're just a baby. They make baby mistakes. So I don't know if that helps, but that's... Any other questions? Sure. The first thing that after witnessing
0: the of Christ church, still so I just see that as a be for And the is still always Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Amen to that. Yeah, right, right. Thank you for sharing that, because it's it's a great word. It's a great word. Um, yeah, I might, I've been walking with with Jesus now for almost fifty years. You never know it being around me. Well, hopefully you would. But, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I I still screw up. I still make mistakes. My mind still goes where it shouldn't go. Um, You know, just about the time I think I'm starting to get it all together, something happens, and I just think, stump you idiot. Come on. You know better than that. God's love never changes. Thanks, Brad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I missed the first part. How do you get what? Just teach them about Jesus, um, and that that sounds really um, broad, I guess. Um, but I would say, first of all, a, as you as you begin to meet with them, and I I happen to think that there is tremendous power in one-on-one meetings, and that's why I do what I do. And by the way, I I've got ten books with me here. If any of you are interested. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that um, they're they're at Amazon for 11 bucks. Uh, I'll go for a flat 10 here uh, if, if you guys want one of them. So, but yeah, I mean, basically, who who I am and what I'm all about is what I wrote about in that book. So, I'd encourage you to get that. Well, thanks again, Brad, for having me here, brother.
0: Yeah, yeah praise God. And tomorrow morning, uh, Jim will speak at both of our services tomorrow morning at 9.30 and 11.30. Why don't you stand? We'll just close this in a word of prayer. And then I could use your, your many hands uh, for the quick pickup process. Round tables go in the hallway across the closet, across the hallway. Square rectangular tables go on the other end. Chairs get stacked in the back. Okay, yeah, yeah, and some people that, there's not a lot of dishes because it's paper products, but whatever needs cleaned. Let's pray. Father, just grateful, God, uh, grateful that you are the one that brings the increase, whether it's bringing a person from death to life or growing them into the character of Christ, that the pressure is not on us to accomplish that, And even in our own lives, as Chris was saying there, when we come to the end of ourselves and our own failures, even after walking with you, the message is still the same, the same gospel truth that Jesus is fully sufficient and what he has done is enough and we can come to him in repentance and be restored and move, continue to move forward. So we're just grateful to, for you, for for who you are, what you do. We give you the glory, God. And uh, thank you for the challenge for us to just start wherever we're at and put our emphasis toward sharing the person of Jesus Christ with those around us. Uh, I believe that's your emphasis. It's clearly the emphasis of the work of your spirit who came uh, to exalt Jesus and to testify to the person of Jesus and, and help us God in your spirit's power to do that in Christ's name I pray amen